0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
1: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so pleased to have, for the first time, a repeat guest on this podcast. Um, And it's a doozy. Susan Orlean has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1992. She's the New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including the library book Rin Tin Tin, Saturday Night, and The Orchid Thief, which was made into the Academy Award-winning film adaptation. She lives with her family and her animals in Los Angeles. Welcome, Susan.
2: I'm so happy to be with you. And I'm, of course, thrilled to be a uh, double dipper.
1: Yeah. libraries and animals you're really kind of coming at me with the the um the best stuff yeah
2: the the most delectable and you know very different topics but the best
1: the best and Susan I feel like some of the pieces in this collection um of your writing on animals are, are things I've read before when they came out in the New Yorker um But I feel like I noticed some new themes just reading them all together um, and being juxtaposed with each other. Um, What did you notice?
2: Well, I think that's the, the thing about a collection that makes it more than just a cut and paste. The only reason, unless you're looking for a historical survey of a particular writer's work, the the point of putting a, a collection together is that there is a sum that is greater than the individual parts. And definitely a thematic collection, you really hope has that kind of vibration when you put the pieces together, that there are themes that are examined from different directions. That was absolutely the case with this, that, I, for me, putting them together was the first time that I looked at the pieces as a whole. And I absolutely saw these themes that kept being reexamined through the different stories and the different species and the different nature of our relationship with those particular species that I th- think kind of enlarge the, the themes in a way that an individual story doesn't.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think one of the things that I loved um, in considering this as a whole is, is that distinction between what is wild and what is tame or domesticated and um, how it's really a spectrum, especially uh, in, in the stories you've covered.
2: Well, that, that's definitely a theme that kept coming up. Um, you know, we have the animals who live inside our house. Yeah, We have animals that if you ran into them on, in a, a wooded area by yourself, you'd be scared. And then we've got this universe of animals that we live with in a different way. They're not in our homes, but they're not wild. And that is a vast universe of domesticated livestock and horses and donkeys and mules and you know the animals that we've forged a certain kind of relationship with that is different from pets. That definitely is what intrigued me, is how do we navigate those very different relationships from our dog to a lion, um, and everything in between, because you know this is a kingdom of animals. there There is a whole parallel universe of animals that we share planet Earth with. Sometimes the overlap is a little uncomfortable. and you know, that's an issue that comes is coming up more and more. Interestingly, um, we're grappling all the time more recently with this issue of human settlement spreading into more wild areas and what that means. So
1: yeah, when another thing that it seems like a big theme that I just wasn't aware of is the idea that we like to. I like to think of the idea of the wild and this, the globe is full of wild places and plenty of where animals can roam free. And that's just not the case. That
2: was a um, kind of a dark moment for me when I was in Africa and was talk, talking um, to someone about this animal uh, reserve that we were in. And realizing that, yes, the animals lived their natural lives in this reserve, but there was a fence. There would be a point where they got to a fence. So they were not domesticated in any way. They weren't captive, so to speak, but they were managed. And they knew exactly how many there were. Mm -hmm. They had tags on a lot of them. And then this guy said to me, well, you know, that's true in, in most of Africa. I mean, there are certainly wild places, but we humans have really managed to leave our foot, our fingerprints um, pretty much everywhere on the globe. And, I think the place you think of as having the most natural kind of wild animal life is Africa. Yeah. But it's actually very, very managed. Um, And unfortunately, it's because there just isn't as much wild space as we think there is. So there's a lot of um, stewardship of the animals there. And, you know, the rangers that work in these parks often know the specific animals not necessarily the animals lower on the food chain sure (laughs) but when you get up to the elephants and the lions and they they know them they and they know who they are and what they do and where they hang out actually i had a funny experience here the other day a mountain lion came into my neighbor's backyard and then walked into our yard a mountain lion like an actual mountain lion and it did not i mean my neighbor's security camera caught video of it and we could see that it didn't have a collar on and many of the mountain lions in los angeles have tracking collars and they're studied and you know they know the people know who they are we thought oh my god this is one like this is a wild wild one and it doesn't have a collar and they don't even know that it exists and we talked to um someone in the wildlife division he said oh no 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 we know him he's a (laughs) young lion we just haven't been able to catch him yet to put a collar on so they knew him and yet he's a wild animal and the next video that was caught of him where he was a few blocks away he had someone's cat in his mouth. Oh, no. He had just caught a cat. And so, you know, talk about the uncomfortable overlap between wild and domestic. You know, this is a completely wild animal. Yeah. But, you know, hanging out in a neighborhood in L.A., I mean, we are not in the wilderness in L.A. We are in L.A. proper. The Hollywood Bowl is like almost walking distance from my house. so. You know, we live in the animal world and the, the division is not as crisp as you think it may be.
1: Yeah, and it's funny, you talk, I mean, you you prepared in your moving to LA, um, you knew that there would be predators <laughs> in a different way from what you had on your farm in the Hudson Valley. Um, and so, so I guess my question is, how are your cats?
2: <laughs> well, my, my cat now is not allowed to go outside. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have ha- had two friends who've had their cats eaten by a coyote in literally in front of their eyes. So our cat doesn't go outside. And, you know, he complains bitterly, of course. I mean, he was used to hanging out outside when we were in the Hudson Valley doing cat things but every vet you talk to here will say you know don't let your cat out if you if you want to keep your cat you really don't want to let them outside it's coyotes it's mountain lions it's uh feline leukemia you know there are different diseases they can get and then there's the urban issue of having I mean, I'm on a street where there are plenty of cars. Cars. So I'm both contending with them not being eaten by a mountain lion and (laughs) the fact that I don't want an Uber driver to run them over.
1: Oof. And of course, another theme I found in this collection is just the idea that if you have animals or interact with animals a lot, that the idea of mortality it constantly surrounds you then.
2: Yeah, that was a, a huge um, revelation to me, which sounds silly and naive, but living on a farm was the first time that I really grappled with the the sort of transitional nature of animal life. You I mean, when, when you get a dog, you feel like, you know, you've got 12 good years, and we all mourn the loss of our dogs and cats enormously. Yes. Life and death on a farm is an everyday occurrence, practically. It's something that when I first got chickens, mm-hmm. and, you know, early on when I first had chickens, I thought, oh, I'm going to give my chickens the best life. They're going to, I'm going to let them loose every day to wander and enjoy themselves and freedom and running around we had 55 acres lucky chickens and you know very quickly two of them got killed and I was devastated I replaced them and then again I lost more chickens and I began realizing that everybody likes to eat chickens hawks, owls, dogs, coyotes, you know, raccoons, you name it. And that you are contending with that fact of life in a very regular and immediate way. And it was a a big adjustment for me. I mean, I had the suburban girls um, kind of very sanitized experience of animals and you know when my childhood dog got very old he took him to the vet took care of him and then he died at age 13 and you know it was a long kind of uneventful life that isn't the way it works on a farm and you you just have to face death as a fact of life
1: and, and I, I it seems like you've become, I don't want to say more savvy, but um, you've, you've learned which animals to name. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I started with four chickens. And of course, I named them. Look, half the fun of having animals is naming them, in my opinion. And I, of course, named them and I continued naming them uh, even when I got up to, I think at the greatest number, I had either 12 or 14 chickens and I had them all named. But we also had cattle. And, you know, cattle are very different from chickens. Cattle are, first of all, big and you can't, Kind of cuddle with them you can cuddle a chicken you can pick up a chicken you can manage a chicken cattle are very big they're shy of people they you know we train them to eat out of our hands but a few of them still wouldn't do it i mean they're much more wild than they are domesticated and that was a big surprise to me i think Certainly, dairy cows are are more used to people because they're handled all the time. But um, black Angus, you know, they're almost wild. They really are. And you know, when we first got them, and we had ten, and they all look alike. So the idea of naming them suddenly became an enormous challenge. So we just named a few that had some feature that made it easy for us to remember their names. (laughs) But then when we got the next herd and we would only get, we would get them in the spring and sell them in the late fall because we didn't have a water source that um, ran during the winter so we couldn't keep them over the winter. Well, as time went on, we stopped naming them. I think because we, you know, we realized that they were temporary visitors and the fact that we didn't have the intimate relationship with them that you might have with a smaller animal. And, you know, that is a big difference. You know, you don't handle
1: a 2,000 pound steer to handle a chicken. But even like in your story about the donkeys in Marrakesh, Um, Most of them have the same name, if you'd want to call it a name.
2: Yeah. Well, that was a a great moment for me. (laughs) And I had kind of forgotten about that aspect of the story until I reread it in preparation for the collection. And, you know, again, like a naive suburban girl who has a soft spot for donkeys, when I got to Morocco, I was always asking people, oh, your donkey, what's your donkey's name? And there was always a little bit of a pause and then they'd say Hamar. And I thought, oh, Hamar, that's a nice name. And then the next person, I would say, oh, you know, your donkey, what's his name? And they would say Hamar. And I thought, wow, that's a crazy coincidence. This is just a very popular name for donkeys. And then I realized that it is the Arabic word for donkey, that, you know, the idea of naming your donkey, when they are really treated as work animals. And I'm not saying that people don't have a sense of kindness or affection, but they are really not looked at as a pet. They are looked at as, you know, I mean, I used to name my cars (laughs) and I don't anymore, but it's kind of the same thing, which is you don't need to name your car. You need to know how to turn it on. And that is a little bit of the attitude towards donkeys in Morocco, which is, this is a tool. It's a, it's a utility device and it doesn't need a name.
1: And I find it so, you were so controlled in your writing when you, you say at the beginning of the book that you fight the urge to anthropomorphize the animals that you write about. And it, It wasn't until I was reading these all together that I realized like how much the human brain or or my human heart or whatever it is, wants to see the humanity in in all of the animals we encounter.
2: Yeah, and, and it is part, I think it's a good thing. I think we do, Want to see a sort of moral connection to animals and and an empathy for them, and that we don't treat them like plants. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're aware of the fact that they have the capacity to feel pain and anxiety and a whole range of emotions. But as a writer. I felt like it was a disservice to not write about them on meeting them at their level. That they, that, and that's a lot of what made the stories interesting, which was that there is a natural disconnect between people and animals. And that what we try to do is meet them in that disconnect sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully, (laughs) sometimes obsessively, Um, you know, there there are all sorts of ways that we try to connect with these alternate beings, but it's not, I, I think, appropriate. I think it is not appropriate to connect with them as people with fur. I mean, they are not, people with fur, they are a different species that, and and, you know, it's something that I'm uncomfortable with when I see people treating animals as if they're just mute humans. I mean, I don't think it acknowledges um, what makes them special, which is they, they aren't people, they aren't human and yeah, they have limitations, but they also have capacities and qualities and characteristics that aren't human. And that is what makes them interesting.
1: Yeah. Uh, to change the topic of it, Susan, I grew up in New Jersey, going to the Six Flags Safari in Jackson. <laughs> oh,
2: no, you're kidding. Oh, my
1: God. No one told uh, me when I was, you know, five that maybe this was unethical <laughs> and not great, right? Um, but and so it really is looking back, thinking like, oh, what have we, what have we done? Um, but speaking of, you did a lot of reporting from Jackson.
2: Yeah, and that was a story that I really loved doing. Um, it's a very complicated, uh, multi-dimensional story about a woman in Jackson who, it was discovered, had 27 pet tigers in her backyard. And this was a story that ranged in its greater meaning from simply being about the development of that area that had gone from being quite rural to suddenly being an exurban, um, you know, densely populated area, it also was very much about animal hoarding, about the question of whether captivity is something that we can really rationalize and justify. And about obsession with animals and uh, what that means and what that does to people when they become fixated in a way that I think of as not healthy, (laughs) either for the people or for the animals. So it was a really interesting story. And what is funny is that I complain in the book about how frustrating it is to write about animals when they don't talk and so our most basic way of connecting with our subjects is not available when you're writing about people talk I mean about the power of speech but in this particular instance the main character in the story the protagonist of the story wouldn't talk to me. So I, I had to write the story um, around her and and try to infer from what I could learn kind of in the subjects surrounding her, about her, about her mentality and, and about her life. And she never spoke to me. She absolutely refused to be interviewed.
1: And Susan, I think this that illustrates what I love about this collection so much um, is that somehow, even when we can acknowledge now that perhaps um, this woman had an unhealthy obsession, for the most part, you reserve judgment or at least you don't moralize. Um, you kind of let your reporting speak for itself and let us read between the lines. Tell me about that as, as a writer.
2: Well, thank you for that because if there's anything that I hope to achieve, it's it's definitely that. My job and my goal is to 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 bring people to notice, whatever it is, this is all about noticing the world around you. You notice things that make you uncomfortable. You notice things that delight you. You notice things that confuse you. But in the end, what matters is noticing. That is for me, the single kind of moral obligation for people who want to inhabit, you know, human society and earth is to to always be noticing. I think you can notice, and as a, as a journalist, as a writer, take people, you know, Gently by the the sides of their cheeks and turn their head and say, notice this. Mm -hmm. This is a very interesting situation that raises all sorts of questions and moral issues. I don't think it's necessary for me to say, this is right, this is wrong. I think what's necessary is for me to bring you to notice. I, it's not to say that I don't have opinions and feelings. I have strong opinions and feelings, but my job is not to kind of dictate to you conclusive opinions about what I'm observing. I, I feel like my calling is to say, pay attention, look, listen, notice the world around you. And and then I know that you will emerge from this with opinions. That that's, of course, legitimate. And that's part of what I hope. I mean, I assume that you will say, well, now that I've noticed this, <laughs> now that when I think about it, I don't think it's so cool to have 27 tigers. <laughs> or... Or maybe your takeaway is that's great and tigers should be less expensive so more people can have them. I mean, I suppose there would have been one or two people who came up with that takeaway from the story. But my, my duty, or at least what I feel is my duty, is to say the world is a complicated, fascinating place, and you will be better for noticing it and for noticing these pockets where these stories live. And once you notice, once you learn about it,
1: well then feel free to
2: draw a conclusion. I I don't feel that that's necessary for me to tell you (laughs) the conclusion
1: that you should have. Love that. Um, Before I ask you for book recommendations, I'm wondering if, it's not in the book, but if there have been any updates since these articles have been published the first time. Um, Specifically, I'm worried about the rabbits (laughs) in North America.
2: Well, for for good reason. Um, And that story is the most recent of the ones in the book. I'm not, I haven't checked in again with the veterinarians I spoke to, but you know, it was really scary. I, I mean this was this is a story about a pandemic that has erupted in the rabbit population around the world and that that may sound very minor, but there are millions of rabbits. Many of them are raised as for meat in a lot of developing countries. It's an important source of meat fur and then pets and, you know, there are lots of rabbits in the world. This disease began spreading through the domesticated rabbits which was a devastating fact. Then the, you know, the d- dread event occurred when it jumped from domestic rabbits into wild rabbits and they are different species. Right. Um, wild rabbits are not even as closely related to domestic rabbits as you might think. I mean, they're a different species. And usually they aren't vulnerable to the same diseases. And unfortunately, this disease, rabbit hemorrhagic fever, made the leap into wild rabbits. And the, the, the repercussions of that or I should say the ramifications of that are really enormous. If you have a die-off in the wild rabbit population, then all of those animals that have rabbits as their primary food source, like hawks and foxes, and you know there are lots of animals that feed on rabbits, they're gonna suddenly be without food. And so it, there's a, a real snowball yeah possibility that was really scary and that that leap into wild rabbits had just happened at the time I was writing the story so I don't know um I mean there's nothing they can do to control it it's it's you know once a disease gets into a wild population there's really not a lot you can do um particularly this disease for various reasons it's really hard to control it. It, You need to be vaccinated against it once a year.
0: You know, it's just
2: not possible. And there are so many millions and millions of rabbits. It's something that we we can't get a handle on. So maybe for the paperback, I'll do a a little update because it left me feeling very disturbed when I learned about it. Yeah also um, anything having to do with viruses now
1: absolutely. i think we all are like i
2: well, no, another virus this is like viruses are going to rule the world and they probably will um but writing this story during covid uh you know it was a, a perfect example of how the animal world and the human world often mirror each other so closely and this was uncanny parallels with covid
1: I mean, even just that you only have a couple of lines, but um, the idea that there are vaccine skeptics, <laughs> like...
2: Completely. I mean, it was so, it, it was uncanny. And also in the beginning, the USDA was sort of refusing to acknowledge that this disease existed in the United States. and. We all went through that with COVID. There was a real resistance initially to acknowledging that COVID had come into this country. So
1: the parallels were spooky. Oof. Well, thank you so much. Before we go, will you? Oh my God, thank, thank you. you.
2: Thank you. And, you know, it's so much fun to talk about this book because um, it's, just, it's just a rich topic. And I've really enjoyed seeing these stories together and having them sort of create a bigger statement about this world around us that is so rich and diverse and interesting.
1: Love it. Thank you. Um, Books.
2: Books, ugh, books. (laughs) I, um, I have to resist the urge to just we reel off a a billion books to suggest to you. But I did a lot of reading during COVID, Mm -hmm. and I think many of us did. It became a a wonderful source of comfort and distraction. Um, Right now, I'm in the middle of reading Clara and the Sun, the Kashio Ishiguro, and really enjoying it. But the two books I want to recommend I could recommend a hundred, but let me just recommend these two that I read during COVID, both of very different books, but both so good. The first one is called Night Boat to Tangier by Kevin Barry. Have you read it?
1: I have not read it. Oh my God. Did I have
2: it's it on a pile. So I sure do. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's a, just a brilliant, brilliant book. Um, the writing is spectacular. The structure, it's just, it's a very ingenious book and it's absolutely brilliant. Um, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's so good. Um, the other book that I, and this is a nonfiction book that I just went nuts over is called In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. Fabulous book, uh, it's extraordinary book. Um, worth reading a second time you know it's just that good and she's a a poet I think primarily but this is a memoir about a really toxic relationship she was in again the structure of the book and the the execution is just brilliant Um, the writing is extraordinary and the story is utterly gripping so these are two I think fantastic books that neither of them is um, light or funny, but they are, they're
1: just great reading experiences. We need that. Thank you so much, Susan.
2: My pleasure. It's
1: so great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.